0: Welcome to the history on the side podcast the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book at the people places and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing but play a much larger role in the story i'm josh burns and welcome to episode 20 no land beyond the volga part two before we get into the episode i need to point out that we're going to be very boots on the ground in this episode meaning that we're going to see and hear things from vasily zaitsev's first person experiences As always, I'm not going to go into all the gory details, but I wanted you to know up front that those kinds of things are going to be mentioned. So with that said, here we go. September 22nd, 1942. It was a dark, dark night. Beneath the cover of darkness, the Volga River of southern Russia flowed steadily southward toward the Caspian Sea. The longest river in continental Europe, the Volga, stretches for miles and miles and is considered one of the national treasures of Russia. On this night, the river has visitors. Sailors-turned-soldiers move quickly and quietly along its eastern banks or look across the watery expanse of the burning city beyond. The burning city of Stalingrad has been through hell. German bombers with the Luftwaffe have leveled the city, carving wanton destruction through its streets. The German 6th Army, commanded by General Friedrich Paulus, had entered Stalingrad a month before. Soviet forces were fighting bravely to repel the invaders, and Joseph Stalin ordered troops to take not one step back in liberating the city that bore his name. On this night, September 22nd, the 284th Rifle Division prepared to make the dangerous crossing from the eastern shore of the Volga to the western side. In the distance, machine gun fire could be heard from Mamayev Kurgan, a large hill-like formation that overlooks the city. The sailor-turned-soldiers huddled together on a tugboat-pulled barge. It was a small miracle that the barge was above water. Even in the dim light, it was clear that shrapnel had caused significant damage, but float it did, and it wasn't long before the barge was loaded with people and supplies, and the tugboat headed steadily for the opposite shore. Over the sounds of the engines, Vasily Zaitsev could hear the quiet splashing of oars as clusters of rowboats headed in the same direction full of soldiers. The tugboat's engine cut off as it reached the other side. Amazingly, by five o'clock in the morning, the entire division had reached the western bank of the Volga in one piece. But it was very much out of the frying pan and into the literal fires that these men jumped. But for our friend, Vasily Zaitsev at least, he was ready. In his autobiography, Notes of a Russian Sniper, Zaitsev states, Now there was no longer any doubt. We would soon enter battle. The baptism of fire for us sailors was going to commence on dry land in a devastated city. Who would begin it, and which of us would survive to see the end? I was resigned to whatever was going to come. I had been repeating to myself that I was not going to retreat, even if I was staring death in the face. I knew that my comrades from the Pacific Fleet were thinking the same thing," End quote. This line of thinking may seem fatalistic, but in a way, it was almost as a response to what the Soviets were experiencing on the ground. By the time Zaitsev and his friends reached the city, the battle had been going on for almost a month. Stutka bombers had been turning the rubble into more rubble, and into smaller and smaller pieces, After the bombs came leaflets hot off the German presses, urging the Soviet populace to surrender. Many did. Long columns of civilians and soldiers started to make their way to POW camps behind the German lines. This was a risky move in and of itself. As we mentioned before, the Germans had this belief in the idea that they were racially superior to just about everyone. The Soviets were under orders to not retreat under any circumstances. German forces had even specifically been ordered that this was a war of an entirely different order. In his book, Voices from Stalingrad, author Jonathan Bastable quotes an order from Adolf Hitler which states, The war against Russia cannot be fought in knightly fashion. The struggle is one of ideologies and racial differences and will have to be waged with unprecedented, unmerciful, and unrelenting harshness. All officers will have to get rid of any old-fashioned ideas they may have. I realize that the necessity for conducting such warfare is beyond the comprehension of you generals, but I must insist that my orders be followed without complaint. The commissars hold views directly opposite to those of National Socialism. Hence, these commissars must be eliminated. Any German soldier who breaks international law will be pardoned. Russia did not take part in the Hague Convention and, therefore, has no rights under it. End quote. Nothing like your nation's leader ordering you to break international law. The Fuhrer was advocating the extermination of the enemy by any means necessary or unnecessary. This was a war not only of conquest but of ideology as well. Atrocities would become a frequent and terrible part of this war on the Eastern Front. Still, it is worth noting that not all of the German soldiers fighting in this war had the same murderous nature as their national leader. Jonathan Bastable tells us of the story of Natalia Tikhonova, who was celebrating her birthday when the bombing of Stalingrad began on August 23rd. She and her family weren't able to get across the Volga River to safety, and so she returned to what was left of her home. Bastable quotes her for what comes next. She says, quote, we were living in the cellars of wrecked buildings. There were five of us, two children and three adults, and we were sitting there and keeping quiet. Then we heard Germans talking, lots of voices. Suddenly, a German officer came in and said to us in broken Russian, Stay quiet. Go nowhere. The SS are coming. And then he went away. He left us alone and said loudly, There's no one here! I understood that much German. End quote. Now, it would take far too long for this humble podcast to cover all of the ins and outs of the Battle of Stalingrad. Most of the books that I've seen only cover small portions of the overall battle, and these books are massive all by themselves. But it is important to note the mindset of the combatants as we get to know one of the more famous soldiers from this battle. Like I said, this was not a gentleman's battle. This was a no-holds-barred slugfest. So, how no-holds-barred are we talking? Consider this excerpt from a German publication called Information for the Troops, which is brought to us again by Jonathan Bastable. The excerpt reads, Anyone who has ever looked at the face of a red commissar knows what the Bolsheviks are like. Here there is no need for theoretical expressions. We would be insulting the animals if we were to describe these men, who are mostly Jewish, as beasts. They are the embodiment of a satanic and insane hatred for the whole of noble humanity." Did you catch the implications of that excerpt? The Russian people, the Bolsheviks, are satanic, and it would be an insult to the animals to call them beasts. So the German soldier on the ground was encouraged to break international law to eliminate this demonically evil people from the face of the earth by any means necessary. Oh, and the fact that they might be Jews was just the icing on the cake for Hitler's plans. Ugh. Now, before you somehow get to thinking that the Soviets were angels in all of this, you should know the bloodthirsty brutality wasn't limited only to the German side of things. Jonathan Bastable again gives us an excerpt from the Pravda, the Soviet propaganda newspaper, which reads, If a day goes by when you have not killed a German, then that is a wasteful day. If you imagine that your neighbor is going to kill a German on your behalf, then you have not appreciated the threat. If you don't kill a German, then the German will kill you. He'll take your loved ones and will torment them in his accursed Germany. If you can't kill a German with a bullet, kill him with a bayonet. If things are quiet where you are, if you are waiting for battle to come to you, then kill a German before the battle. If you allow a German to live, that German will hang a Russian man and rape a Russian woman; if you have already killed a German, kill another one. For us there is nothing jollier than German corpses. Don't count the days passed or the miles travelled; just count the Germans you have killed. Kill a German: that is what your old mother asks of you; kill a German: that is what your child begs from you; kill a German: the earth that bore you is crying out for you to do it. Don't miss. Don't hesitate. Kill. End quote. Wow. This primal, repetitive drumbeat of kill or be killed may be shocking or hard to hear or understand for us 75-plus years after the fact. But as we will see, this primal drumbeat would be the tempo that drove the battle raging in Stalingrad. As we go on, keep in mind that the invading 6th Army were under orders from German General Paulus to live off the land and to take what they needed from the conquered people. In the words of Jack Sparrow, sorry, Captain Jack Sparrow of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the Germans were to take what they could and give nothing back. So, back to Vasily Zaitsev. After disembarking from the tugboat ride across the Volga, He and his comrades were ordered to stay put near the water. Smoke swirled overhead as the hours passed. Suddenly, the Soviet troops were spotted by German scouts and were quickly bombarded by mortar fire and incendiary shells from the German ME-109 planes. The inexperienced and no doubt terrified sailors scattered in all directions. Zaitsev sought refuge with a few other soldiers in a bomb crater right as rockets from the Soviet Katyushas or multi-barreled rocket launchers return fire on the German mortar positions. Zaitsev describes it this way, Quote, Exactly at that moment we heard the whoosh, whoosh, whoosh of our katyushas firing from the opposite j- bank. Nice job, boys, and right on time. We could see the katyushas pulverizing the Fritz's mortar batteries, with Fritz's being blasted into the air as each salvo hit the ground. What a sight this was! the yellow flames of the Katyusha's explosions, then men and pieces of men thrown into the air in every direction. End quote. What came next is like something out of a movie. Zaitsev tells us that one of his commanders, pistol in hand, screamed out, Rodina, meaning for the motherland, and sprinted toward the German machine gun nests near some petrol tanks. Zaitsev was soon right beside him with the other soldiers, encouraged by this insane charge rallying and following behind. The charge went about as well as could be expected when you have unprotected foot soldiers versus the scything bullet spray of a machine gun. Soviet soldiers ran forward and died. The Soviet attack stalled, and as soon as the Germans realized that they were about to be outflanked by a contingent of Soviet soldiers, the Germans called in another artillery barrage. Incendiary bombs began raining down on that small section of the city, which didn't mix well with the petrol tanks burning fuel fell like rain and giant tongues of flame belched skyward from the ruined tanks. Zaitsev tells us, quote, The soldiers and sailors who were engulfed in flames ripped off their burning clothes, but none of us halted our advance, nor did we drop our weapons. An attack of naked, burning men. What the Germans must have thought about us, I can only guess. Perhaps they took us for demons or maybe saints that not even flames could stop. End quote. Whether saints or demons, the Soviets were able to beat back the Germans and send them running back to the city's westernmost streets. Zaitsev's first taste of combat had left him alive, though at least partially naked with a tarp thrown over his shoulders. As he recalls in his biography, it was a baptism by fire, but it was only the beginning. Soon after this initiation into war, Zaitsev's unit had captured the offices of a nearby metalworking plant, and were busy trying to reclaim the plant's massive production workshops, or hiding from the incendiary bombs the German Luftwaffe kept trying to drop on them. Things got personal for Zeitsev here. After one of the bombing runs, German soldiers engaged the Soviets in close quarters fighting, which quickly dissolved into hand-to-hand combat. Here's Zaitsev's recollection. Quote, Suddenly a big German was on top of me. He hit me with the butt of his gun. Fortunately, the blow glanced off my helmet instead of my face. This was where our training on the other side of the river came in handy. I slipped behind him and got my arm locked around his neck, then managed to choke him while he thrashed around trying to shake me off like a buffalo trying to dislodge a tiger from its back. Finally, the Fritz stopped struggling." As far as we know from Zaitsev's account, this is the first time that he has taken a human life in this manner. This is the nature of the struggle in Stalingrad, however. One moment you and your comrade are sheltering from bombs dropped on top of you, and the next moment you're fighting for your life in hand-to-hand combat while catching a rifle butt to the face. It's kind of like that scene in Saving Private Ryan, where the exhausted Americans accidentally knock over a wall, and an entire German command team is sitting shocked on the other side. Almost as soon as Zaitsev was finished with his German, he witnessed something incredible. A young girl, scraped and bleeding, wearing a torn blue dress and little red ripped boots, was walking through the carnage, apparently unaffected by the bullets and shrapnel whizzing by. She walked calmly and serenely through the battlefield toward a Soviet aid station, walking at the head of a line of wounded soldiers. Nazi bullets and shrapnel started to fly as the Germans targeted the wounded men. Yet the brave little girl walked on leaving the battlefield as suddenly as she entered it as Zaitsev emptied his drum magazine, returning fire back toward the enemy. Retracing the mysterious girl's steps, Zaitsev and another soldier named Rutov came upon a long corridor with a large metal door at the end. Hearing the spoken Russian on the other side, the two men banged on the door, which opened to a pitiful scene of wounded Russian soldiers being cared for by a nurse. Apparently, this cellar, where the injured were laying, was an end point to a complicated secret passage down to the Volga River. The Russian wounded and the nurse caring for them had been somewhere in the process of evacuating when the Germans took over the workshops and rooms above them. Any further movement would be too risky without clearing the Germans out above. Zaitsev and Rutov decided to go have a look. What follows in Zaitsev's account reads very much like a covert ops slash spy novel, complete with a pithy one-liner from Zaitsev. Here goes. In the basement, Rutov found an air duct that he and Zaitsev were able to climb into and follow. Darkness was the only thing they could see, but they could certainly hear the sounds of battle from the surrounding areas, muffled though it was. One set of wooden stairs later, and the two men came to their exit. A square opening covered by a thick sheet of iron Sounds of battle were nearby, but Zaitsev decided to have a look around. One problem, though. The iron sheet wouldn't budge when he pushed on it. He and Rutov prepared to try it together when two nearby explosions made their ears ring. They waited, but no sounds came for a while. So the two men pushed together on the iron. With an echoing screech, it moved, but the two men worried that the sound would give away their position. With no bullets or grenades coming their way, however, Zaitsev, the smaller of the two men, crawled through the opening. Zaitsev describes what happens next, saying, So I poked my head up like a mole and glanced back and forth. We had found our way into a storeroom for the machine shops. All around me were shelves filled with appliances and tooling. I could also see what was going on in one of the adjacent assembly workshops. It was full of Germans, maybe a whole company they had gathered for lunch. They had their mess tins and thermoses in their hands. A cook from a field kitchen had delivered a pot of stew for them, and the cook was ladling it out. The Germans were acting relaxed, as if they were back in a mess hall in Munich or Cologne. They were oblivious to me, the Russian sailor, who was counting them one by one, like sheep." Quote. Zaitsev stayed quiet, and made a rough drawing of the room and the German positions along with some other important information, which he stealthily gave to Rutov to bring to their commander, Lieutenant Bolshapov. Rutov disappeared, leaving Vasily alone for about 20 minutes, watching the Germans eat and smoke. Zaitsev says, quote, Two of the Fritzes wandered into my corner of the workshop, and I popped my head down. They were smoking and laughing as they talked. They were so close I could smell the cabbage stew on their breath." End quote. Picture that: a small Russian soldier hiding in a room of about sixty five German soldiers on their lunch break, and so close to two of them that he could smell their breath. Zaitsev sure was making good use of his nat twenties that day. Zaitsev does make sure to mention in his narrative that their faces were full of arrogance and go so far as to say that they had the arrogance of a conqueror about them. The minutes stretched on and on. The two Germans kept talking, smoking and laughing, while Zaitsev kept hidden and silent. It's a miracle they didn't see him or hear him. Suddenly, there was a loud clattering at the far end of the impromptu dining hall. The Germans, sensing some kind of danger, began rushing around. Here's Zaitsev again with what happened next. Quote, Then I heard Bolshepov's voice shout a command, and grenades were heaved into the Nazis makeshift cafeteria. I counted thirty odd explosions in the space of a few seconds. The two Fritzes by me took cover and I rolled a grenade up to their toes. When they noticed the grenade rolling across the floor, they glanced in up my direction and our eyes met. Here comes the pithy one liner. Now that they had seen the grenade coming, they didn't look so arrogant anymore. End quote. Two minutes later, all of the Germans lay dead. The victorious Soviet soldiers finished taking the factory that day, got the wounded up out of the cellar, set up a field hospital, and got more wounded back to the Volga River. Says Zaitsev, quote, Thus ended my first battle, or more precisely, my first day of battle in Stalingrad. End quote. September twenty-second, 1942, had indeed been quite a long day for our friend Vasily Zaitsev. He had survived and, according to him, played a key role in deciding the outcome of the fighting twice, all in a single day. The following week saw more intense fighting as the Germans and Soviets conquered and reconquered the same factories over and over again. Artillery barrages chewed up the landscape continually, half-burying the fallen where they lay. The Soviets, in an effort to escape the bombardment, dug in as close to the German battle lines as they could so that any artillery barrage that hit them would also hit the Germans as well. Jonathan Bastable gives us an account by German General Hans Duer, who described the fighting conditions in Stalingrad this way, saying, quote, For every house, workshop, water tower, railway, embankment, wall, cellar, and every pile of ruins a bitter battle was waged, one without equal, even in the First World War, with its great expenditure of munitions. The distance between the enemy's arms and ours was as small as it could possibly be. In this hellscape of a battlefield, every Russian soldier tried to stay within a grenade throw of his German enemy, not only to prevent the Germans from bombing them unless they wanted to hit their own troops, as we said earlier, But also to constantly harry the invaders and keep tabs on their locations. It soon became apparent that the bombing wasn't doing much good anyway, and even had a few drawbacks for the German forces. The constant bombardment eventually just started to redistribute and reshape the rubble, which in turn just made new hiding spaces for the Russians to shoot the Germans from. The bombs also rendered large portions of the city unusable for Germany's tried-and-true method of sending in the panzer tanks to soften up enemy strongpoints. Russian tactics would annoy the Germans to no end. Russian soldiers would lure the panzers and their infantry escorts into narrow choke points between the skeletons of buildings or in a rubble-strewn street. Once suitably trapped, they would machine gun the unfortunate Wehrmacht soldiers and drop Molotov cocktails, or as the Russians called them, bottles of inflammable liquid on the tanks. The Soviets also became quite good at using the sewer system of the city to constantly pop up in unexpected places, usually above or behind the German lines, with rifles and submachine guns at the ready. These tactics annoyed the German invaders so much that they named this style of warfare the Rattenkrieg or Rat War. One particular day Zaitsev was out fighting but struggling to get back to the safety of his bunker to get some sleep. He's falling asleep on his feet at this point, but makes it into a bunker, finds something soft beneath him, and falls asleep. Hours passed as Vasily slept on. When he finally awoke, it was quiet and dark. He sat up, fumbling in his pockets for a match and a cigarette. Fumbling around, he felt something underneath him. A, a mustache? Blood? Blood? what was going on? Where was he? Finally, with shaking hands, he lit a match and looked down into a horror movie scene. So if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds or so, I won't mind. The small light from the match showed him the faces and bodies of Soviet soldiers, but there was something not right about it all. The bodies were contorted with their arms and legs frozen at odd angles. He had somehow been mistaken for a dead man and had been buried alive in a mass grave. Fortunately, miraculously, he found a shovel that had been carelessly dropped into the pit at some point. Mounds of sand had been poured into the grave, so the understandably frantic Zaitsev began to try to dig his way out. He found a few abandoned weapons and even an entire box of grenades, but these were small comfort. Finally, he managed to break through the walls of the nightmare enclosure into the darkness of the night. He lay there for a moment, taking it all in. He had just been buried alive and lived. Now where was he? He didn't know for sure, but he did know where the enemy was. About 50 meters ahead with their machine guns firing tracer rounds toward the Volga, which meant that the enemy was between him and his friends. Vasily crawled back into the grave, as horrifying as that was. Eventually, he found the box of grenades and stuffed as many of them in his pockets as he could. He filled an empty bag with more and then set out toward the German positions. Flares popped overhead, illuminating his way toward the German-held factory office, where the machine gun nests were, one on the ground floor and one in the floor above. Slowly, carefully... Zaitsev positioned himself just below the gun on the ground floor. Zaitsev says, I heaved a grenade through the first floor window. Then without waiting for it to detonate, I tossed a couple more through the first floor window just above. The Fritz gunner on the ground floor spotted me and tried to depress his gun so he could fire at me. That was when the first grenade I had tossed detonated and blew him out the window. The subsequent grenade explosions destroyed the gun and crew on the first floor. End quote. With the machine gun nest destroyed, the Soviets were able to retake the factory offices where Zaitsev was. Understandably, Vasily was too exhausted to do much more than watch, seeing as he had been mostly dead all day. But as we all know, mostly dead is slightly alive. Which is incredible either way, as his comrades clearly thought. Zaitsev's commander, Lieutenant Bolshapov, took one look at the filthy Vasily and excitedly ran over and embraced him, saying, I thought we had buried you. Which you kind of did, though, even without checking to see if Zaitsev was breathing, apparently. But at least he cared enough to tell the unit captain, quote, this is senior warrant officer Zaitsev. Zaitsev has been resurrected from the dead, So that's nice, I guess. He knew his name and all, but didn't think to check for a pulse or anything. But no matter, the fighting certainly didn't stop. Things went on like this day after day. Zaitsev's unit continued to fight the Germans day in and day out. And while Zaitsev doesn't tell us that he was buried again, he does tell us about the fateful day when he met Sergeant Galifan Abzalov. One day... Not long after the mass grave incident, Zaitsev's unit was pinned down by machine gun fire. Hugging the ground <clears throat> hugging the ground so as not to be shot, Zaitsev noticed a short soldier crawling steadily toward the German machine gun nests. Everyone else was frozen except this one single rifleman. Zaitsev noticed a strange small pipe attached to the soldier's weapon. He says quote, the next second, the short guy was aiming, and wham! He shifted his weight, and a few seconds later, he fired again. Wham! And suddenly, both machine guns were silent. End quote. Zaitsev had just witnessed the effectiveness of a sniper's ability to turn the tide of battle with a single well-placed shot. Snipers would prove to be an invaluable asset in the Rattenkrieg, one that the Soviet forces would readily exploit and encourage. In the book one hundred and ninety nine days the Battle for Stalingrad, historian Edwin Hoyt quotes Russian General Vasily Chuikov as saying quote, every German soldier must be made to feel that he is living under the muzzle of a Russian gun. Quote. As we've said, the closeness of the Russian forces combined with the hit from behind tactics they employed undoubtedly gave the Germans this feeling. But put yourself in the boots of a German soldier for just a second, and consider what he must be thinking. Not the crazed ideology part, but the ever-present threat of danger. That somewhere in all of that rubble lay an enemy soldier that you can't see, watching and waiting for the most opportune moment to end your life. Somewhere in the twisted wreckage of the city, a lone wolf prowled around, searching through a tiny scope for his next victim. The next shot could ring out in the stillness and claim you or the guy sitting just inches from you. The psychological effects would be maddening to me. One of the most celebrated snipers not named Vasily Zaitsev was a 19-year-old soldier named Anatoly Chekhov, who was supposed to have killed 17 Germans in two days. General Chekhov called Chekhov, quote, a hunter of two-legged beasts, end quote. Other notable snipers serving on the Russian side include Lyudmila Lady Death Pavilchenko, who fought at Odessa and Sevastopol, and is credited with an amazing 309 confirmed kills. Ivan Sidorenko, who fought at the Battle of Moscow, and is credited with an astounding 500 confirmed kills, and Natalia Kovshova, who died near Novgorod, with an estimated 300 Germans killed. Now, there were many other snipers at work for the Soviet Union, thanks to the sniper schools that popped up during the conflict; but think about those numbers for a second-three people with over a thousand kills between them! Understandably Soviet snipers filled the German soldiers with terror, and the Soviets knew it and would celebrate it. But Germany would also employ its own snipers during the war who had come out to hunt the Soviet soldiers and snipers alike. By the end of September 1942, the Nazis controlled much of the central parts of Stalingrad and had even managed to gain some very important strategic points overlooking the Volga. This made it very dangerous for the Russians to bring fresh troops into the city during the daytime, lest they get mowed down by enemy machine guns. A few weeks passed, with Zaitsev in the thick of the fighting. He didn't make it out unscathed, however, as he survived being bayoneted and being shot in the leg, But there came a day with a relative lull in the action, and Vasily and his comrades were taking a quick break. Suddenly, they were, once again, under fire from a machine gun about 600 meters or 650 plus yards away. One of Zaitsev's friends, a man named Masayev, handed him a little trench periscope. Zaitsev says, I took a quick look, then raised my rifle and practically without aiming fired a shot the gunner collapsed. Within seconds, two more gunners appeared, and in rapid succession, I plugged each of them with a single bullet. End quote. One of the commanding officers witnessed Zaitsev's accuracy and ordered him to receive a sniper rifle of his own. Those three German soldiers would be the first three to become part of the Zaitsev legend. Zaitsev took to being a sniper immediately and morbidly stated, quote, I liked being a sniper and having the d- discretion to pick my prey. With each shot, it seemed as if I could hear the bullets smashing through the enemy's skull, even if my target was 600 meters away. Sometimes a Nazi would look in my direction, seeming to stare right at me without having the slightest idea that he was living out his final seconds. End quote. Zaitsev continues, quote, It always intrigues me to look through good optics at an enemy hundreds of meters away. Beforehand, you can only see him as a small and indistinct shape. Then suddenly you see the details of his uniform, and whether he is short or tall, skinny or fat. You can tell whether or not he is shaved that morning. You know if he is young or old, and if he is an officer or a soldier. You can see the expression on his face, and sometimes your target will be talking to another soldier or even singing to himself. And as your man wipes his brow or lazily moves so that his helmet shifts, you can find the best spot to plant your bullet. End quote. Absolutely terrifying if you're on the wrong side of the scope. Like we said in the last episode, efforts have always been made in wartime to reduce the humanity of the enemy. That's why Zaitsev refers to the Germans as Fritzes, as just a singular mass of humans that all look the same, act the same, think the same, and therefore should all be treated the same. It's a way to overcome the empathy hardwired into our brains that's designed to recognize humans as similar to ourselves. It's pretty easy to ignore that empathy and the other person's humanity when it's the heat of battle and the primal part of your brain is in control and in fight-or-flight mode just trying to survive. But it's another matter entirely when you are staring through a scope and your rational mind notices the little details that make a human being a human being, like the cut of their hair or the smile lines around their eyes. You are literally determining the course of the unsuspecting victim's life with the pull of a trigger. Now, I've never been in the military or in a combat situation, so to me the more intimate nature of the sniper's mission would be incredibly, incredibly difficult. But that is speaking from inexperience. As we've seen on this front of the war, the rules were more like guidelines, and even those guidelines could and would be ignored. Maybe for Zaitsev, the Germans were seen as animals, as prey to be hunted. In any case, Zaitsev was very good at what he did, and what he did wasn't very nice. In the first description of a sniper kill that he gives us in his autobiography, He turns the tide of the battle by eliminating the three German occupants of another machine gun nest with three well-placed shots. With the nest neutralized, the rest of the battalion could move on and get back to action. In his book, Zaitsev lists October 21, 1942, as his first day on the job as a sniper. His assignment? Master the sniper's art at the expense of as many Germans as possible. And that is where we will leave Vasily Zaitsev for this long overdue episode of History on the Side. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, cries of outrage, or declarations of independence, you can send them my way by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, by going to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Or no Land Beyond the Volga, Part 3.